2: This is carnage. It's the 9th of March, in the afternoon, and a Russian plane has just dropped an enormous bomb on the city of Mariupol. The video I'm watching is shot on a smartphone, and in the foreground there's a silver people carrier, and behind that there's an apartment block, and there's this dark smoke billowing up from behind it. Everything is grey. The car, the sky, the road. There's shards of glass raining down. But I have to say that it's not the image that's striking here. It's the noise, a cacophony of sirens and car alarms. It's the soundscape of shock and of horror. And if horror was to have a sound in the dictionary, I think this would be it, its defining point. Later in the film, the reporters shooting the video, who are from the Associated Press, walk into a square surrounded by pale green and yellow buildings. the windows are blown out, debris or dust is falling like snow, dusting everyone who's now congregating in the immediate aftermath of this attack. Some people are being treated by the military and others are being carried out of the buildings on stretchers. And at first, it's hard to see what exactly has been hit. But then, watching the video, it dawns. Rescue workers are trying to get a heavily pregnant woman down narrow stairs on a stretcher. She's lying on a colorful red blanket. It looks like it might be in the pattern of a strawberry or maybe a watermelon. She's covered in dust, and she's gravely wounded. The building is a maternity hospital. I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. There's a cliché when you witness conflict, that the truth is obscured by the fog of war. But with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, it feels different. There's a hailstorm of evidence emerging, the massacre of Bucha, the sinking of the Moskva, the assault on the Donbass. But if there's one place that feels like it's epitomized the remorselessness of Russian violence and Ukraine's remarkable defiance, it's the city of Mariupol. But at what cost? Well, we don't yet know. And as I record this, the city is on the brink of defeat, and by the time that you listen to it, it will be in Russian hands. And then there will be a clear-up of bodies and of evidence. For a few weeks now at Tortoise, we focused on this one city, and we stopped trying to investigate it as a war zone, but instead to think of it as a crime scene, and to understand who the victims are, who's responsible, and who may eventually hold the perpetrators to account. In this week's episode, Mariapol's Truth. <laughs> Five months before the Russian invasion, the city looked very different to how it does now. On the Azov Sea, with parks and fountains and a grand theatre with a beautiful neoclassical façade, ice cream huts along the promenade, and looming over the city, the Azov-style iron and steel works, one of the biggest in Europe. Okay, so
3: I'm 30 years old, and all these uh, years I live in Mariupol. All my family lives in Mariupol, everyone from Mariupol, like, centuries, yes. So
2: This is Maria Kutnikova, born and raised in Mariupol-like generations of her family before her.
3: It's very multinationality region. You know, Greeks, German people, Polish, Jewish, Russians, Ukrainian. In my blood is everyone, everyone.
2: Most people in the city speak Russian and just 40 miles away across the sea. Is Russia. And here, the deep relationship with their neighbor has for a long time now been really fraught with violence. Because in 2014, Russia invaded eastern Ukraine, and a separatist movement pledging allegiance to Russia seized Donetsk, the largest city in the region. Mariupol at that time was damaged, but it resisted the separatists. And as the conflict died down, the residents, like Maria, set about to rebuild their city.
3: This last eight years, uh, we r- built the, another Mariupol. More beautiful, more safety. I understand it's very strange to hear now. Every year, we choose a capital of culture. And Mariupol was capital of culture. And we have a lot of like festivals, you know, like theater festival, music festival, some, you know, poets came. So my city was every year better and better for life.
2: So when, late last year, Western governments began to brief that Russia was amassing troops along the Ukrainian border, Maria thought that she knew what to expect. By early February, the US President Joe Biden was clear that Russia was
4: going to invade. And we are ready to respond decisively to Russian attack on Ukraine, which is still very much a possibility.
3: It's funny because President Biden said that Russians came to Ukraine in February 16, and this is my birthday.
2: The 16th of February was Maria's 30th birthday, and she partied as if it was going to be her last chance.
3: (laughs) And it's really now in my life, like, last party.
2: She described how she put on an embroidered dress that belonged to her grandmother, a Ukrainian national dress, as an act of defiance. And the joy that night was defiant too. Just over a week later, Russia launched its invasion, and troops quickly headed towards Mariupol, a strategic city in that part of Ukraine. Many residents left, but by the second week of March, around 300,000 people, three quarters of the city, remained. And for Maria's family, staying was about taking a stand.
3: Me and my family, we have a conversation. We should go away from Mariupol because like, it's not safety, but then we're like, no, fuck Russians, this is our city. We didn't want that these uh, fucking jerks live in our apartments. And, you know, the Azov, the battalion, they saved Mariupol eight years ago. And when the this time war started, we have the same conversation, and we are like, no, this is our city, we are not go anywhere.
2: That battalion that Maria mentions, the Azov Battalion, they're a pretty notorious far-right militia that formed in 2014 to fight against the Russian-backed separatists. They're thought to make up a really small part of Ukraine's armed forces, but they've become a key part of Putin's justification for the invasion because he's saying that he's denazifying the country. But to Maria, these battalions are the city's defenders. And so she stayed with her family. In the first fortnight of the invasion, two attempts to create humanitarian evacuation corridors failed, and the Russians continued to destroy the city. On the 2nd of March, one neighbourhood was reportedly shelled for 15 hours straight. Russian bombs continued to hit Maria's neighbourhood, and life in the city was becoming impossible. There was no electricity, no gas or running water. The mobile phone signal was intermittent, and there was no internet. They were cold and hungry. They had just biscuits to eat. And they spent their days counting Russia's warplanes. They even grew to recognize them.
3: It was bombed like every hour. Planes with, I don't know, some artillery. And we were so crazy that we understand by the noise, we understand planes have four bombs or eight bombs. And we like one, two, three, four. Okay, like,
2: biplane. plane. She knew the sounds of the plane so well that she could identify them from the number of bombs that they dropped. And outside her building, the devastation was mounting. Civilians were caught up in an attack on their city that was, by now, unrelenting and indiscriminate. After Mariupol lost water and power a week into the invasion, civilians were drinking out of puddles, cooking scraps of food over open fires on the street... Images began to emerge that had been taken across the first weeks of the attack. The body of a six-year-old girl in unicorn pyjamas, lying lifeless on a gurney. A 16-year-old, killed playing football with his friends, lay under a bloodstained sheet. Building after building had been destroyed. And on the 2nd of March, the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, claimed that Putin had now carried out war crimes.
1: Uh, What we have seen already... Uh, from Vladimir Putin's regime in the use of the munitions that they have already been, uh, been dropping on uh, on innocent civilians, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, in my view, already fully qualifies as, as, as a war crime. And I know that the, uh, that the ICC prosecutor is already investigating, and I'm sure the whole House uh, will support that.
2: Mariupol appeared to be becoming Exhibit A of Putin's ruthlessness. But the Kremlin always has a counter-narrative and 5 days after Boris Johnson's accusation at the UN Security Council Russia put forward a story well it was a story but it was also a setup
4: the critical situation for people in other regions of the country is that they are also blockaded by nationalist battalions we note that Ukrainian radicals day by day are showing their true face more clearly the local locals inhabitants have said that they forced out the staff of a maternity clinic and then put a firing site in that clinic. They also completely destroyed one of the nursery schools. Vasily
2: Nebenzia, the Russian UN representative, claimed that the Ukraine armed forces had taken over a maternity hospital in Mariupol. Hospital number one, he said, was being used as a military base. Two days later, on the morning of the 9th of March, Russia promised a regime of silence, another attempt at a humanitarian corridor. But then, at midday, a spokesperson for the Russian foreign ministry claimed, without evidence, that another hospital, Hospital No. 3, was also being used as a military base. Number 3 had a maternity ward, a women's health clinic, and a unit for children with autoimmune diseases. But Russia was claiming it was a firing position for Ukrainian forces. The narrative was being laid. And later that afternoon... It's thought from the size of the crater that was allegedly two stories deep that the bomb weighed at least 450 kilos. This was undoubtedly a civilian target. But the Kremlin wanted people to think otherwise. Because if there was a military presence, Russia could claim that it was a legitimate military target. They seemed, perhaps, to have an eye on the Geneva Convention, which protects hospitals from targeted attacks. And then the Russian embassy Twitter account in the UK went a step further. And I have to say that when I saw this allegation beginning to circulate, I began to feel a bit sick. Because this, it felt to me, was a new level of disdain for Ukrainian victims, like all the rules were now being thrown out of the window. Because this tweet that was now circulating on Twitter was claiming that one of the pregnant women who was photographed fleeing the hospital, a woman whose face was cut and marked with blood, well, it said that she was an actor in some very realistic makeup, a crisis actor. They claimed that she was also playing the part of a different pregnant woman who was carried out of the hospital on a stretcher with an enormous wound, a woman who later died.
1: How can you possibly justify the bombing of a maternity ward and a children's hospital?
2: And Russia's foreign minister, Sergey Lavrov, dismissed the outcry over the hospital bombing as pathetic.
1: Thank you very much. With regard to the maternity hospital, it's not the first time we see pathetic outcries concerning the so-called atrocities.
2: He said Russia had already warned the Security Council that the Azov Battalion had taken over the hospital. On the
1: 7th or the 6th, I don't recall exactly now, at the Security Council of the UN, facts were proffered by our delegation saying that that maternity hospital was uh, taken over by the Azov Battalion and other radicals. The story
2: circulated by Russia, seeded at the Security Council and spread on social media, is a lie. The pregnant woman accused of being an actor is a woman called Marianna. She had an Instagram account where she'd been posting about her pregnancy for months. And weeks after the attack, she denied that she was the woman pictured on the stretcher.
4: The in Donetsk, in the military, and, then... and
2: that hospital that was mentioned by the Russians at the UN Security Council, that was hospital number one, not hospital number three the one which was shelled on the 9th of March. So none of it adds up. And it's confusing, but of course that's part of the plan, to kick up dust in the face of truth and evidence. As for the idea that the Azov battalion was holed up in the hospital, the Russian embassy in Israel tweeted an image of a tank in front of a building to try and claim it as evidence. But that's not true either. The investigative group Bellingcat located the photo. It had actually been taken six miles away from the hospital. In fact, there's no evidence at all that hospital number three was in use or being used by Azov fighters.
1: My name is Puchkov Dmitry Alexandrovich. I'm a third-year intern, and my specialties are obstetrics and gynecology.
2: Dimitri had been working inside hospital number no. three just two days before the bombing. He was on leave on the day of the bombing, and what he told us has been voiced here by an
1: actor. In maternity hospital number no. three, I didn't see any wounded soldiers. If you mean this hospital and not the regional one, then no, I saw there are no wounded soldiers.
2: After the bombing, he works at another nearby hospital where the injured from number no. three were brought. And it was all just mothers and children, he said.
1: Right on March the 9th, six people were brought to us. Among them was a woman with severe injuries of her lower extremities. In addition to the traumatic lower extremity fractures, there was hit a vessel that resulted in massive bleeding. This woman had full term, and surgeons had to make a caesarean section. Unfortunately, they didn't manage to save either the woman who died from massive bleeding or the child, who also died as a result of this bleeding. Also, we operated on one woman as there were signs of fetal stress. She and her child are fine. On the same day, we successfully delivered another baby. A bit later, we delivered four more babies and performed two more caesarean sections. There were women with various fractures, traumas, shrapnel wounds, the ones caused by small pieces of exploded bombs. People with such injuries were brought to us. Pregnant women who weren't injured but stayed in the basements for a long time came to us as well. Men came and asked if they could bring their wives and we could help them here. We accepted them all and we all tried to help. Women with gynecological pathologies like bleeding and infectious diseases of the female genital organs applied too. We did our best to help them.
2: Ukrainian soldiers did guard hospitals in Mariupol, but that's all they did. They guarded. And when Russian soldiers took over the hospital where he worked, Dmitry and his few remaining colleagues continued to work.
1: From a purely human point of view, something flew in and destroyed the maternity hospital, and there was a newborn pathology department. These were babies who had been on oxygen supply, who couldn't breathe on their own. And what happened to them after all that? Just imagine that.
2: At least five civilians were killed by the hospital bombing. The woman on the stretcher, the one that Russia lied about, she died a few days after the attack, soon after her baby. Speaking to the Associated Press, the medics treating her said that when she realized she was losing her baby, she cried out, Kill me now. Maria, though, was unaware of any of this. Like most of the people left in Mariupol, she was low on food and water and she was just trying to survive. Just a day after the hospital bombing, her flat was hit. She'd already moved out. By now, she was living in a narrow corridor with her neighbours.
3: I live in the, my neighbors corridor. The corridor was like two metres and one and a half metres. And we were lying on the floor, and you know, like <laughs> all body was like hurts, and we not seen like anything. Six days we sit in the corridor, we heard the noise of the planes, of the bombs, but we didn't realize the destruction of the city. And then, um, after four days, they bombed in the day, in the night, and you know, you want to sleep. And one night, I was sa- said to my mom, like, Could you please? stop counting. I won't sleep. I really didn't care about plans, about artillery. i so tired that, you know, the walls was like, and I was like, I don't care. I won't sleep. i I very tired. It's, you know, it's bomb. Come into the corridor. We cannot do anything. You
2: know? Maria, her sister and her mother had no idea what was going on beyond their corridor. At this point, they believed that the Ukrainian army would come and rescue them.
3: And so we have no news, but we every day believe that just few days in our army save us. Russians cannot occupy Mariupol because we are like a lot of army and we believe that everything's been fine.
2: Finally, it dawned on her. No one was coming.
3: We haven't food, we haven't water. Everything was bombed. And we really realized that nobody saved us, really. We should go somewhere. But when the electricity go away from the city, I uh, turned off my phone and turned on like every day, like one time and trying to get like a mobile connection. And day before, March 15, I just turned on my phone and I have a mobile connection and I was like oh! and I call my dad.
2: Maria's parents are divorced and her dad now lives in Kyiv.
3: And I was like dad what's the news and he was like evacuation buses now in Berdansk. And uh, like a few days and they came to Marupol and one of the places where they yes, it's drama theatre, you should go to the drama theatre, I live near the drama theatre. And he said, like, go to the drama theatre.
2: Her dad had told her that if there were going to be evacuation buses anywhere, they would be at the theatre in Mariupol. And so on the evening of the 15th of March, Maria hatched a plan. She decided to try and make her way there, to catch a bus out of the city, to try and make it to safety further in the west of Ukraine or in Poland for her family and for her neighbours, who had all been tucked away in that tiny corridor in northeast Mariupol. This was their first time venturing out in more than a week. They chose a moment in the morning when, for an hour, the city fell quiet.
3: Sometimes in the morning, sometimes, we have like one uh, quiet hour. The artillery have a rest and we have plan how we can get there. And the plan was... Uh, very
2: stupid. By this point, the theatre had become a refuge for hundreds of civilians across the city. The Azov Battalion had posted a video on YouTube on the 10th of March, showing that it was packed with women and children sheltering from the shelling. Maria's plan was to keep to the back streets, to make short dashes through the open, to duck into houses if they thought that they were in danger. But when they left their building, they got a shock.
3: Everything is destroyed. I didn't recognize my native yard. and, oh my God, our street was like destroyed.
2: They came face to face with Russian tanks.
3: We really saw Russian tanks with Z. And we was like, Russian tanks in the city. And we forgot our plan
2: when they moved, Maria says, so did the tanks. And then suddenly, they just started firing at Maria and her family.
3: Oh, oh my god! And we started to run just running like craziness. Like, right? You know, I have a cat. I have like, you know, cat house. And I was like, and my cat was like, raw, raw.
2: the city that they knew had vanished. There were no streets left to follow. Rubble and shrapnel blocked their path. But finally, they made it to the theater.
3: It's uh, like heaven. Why? Because our street was like destroyed. But the central of the center, were a few destructions. And it's been like sunny day, like people was in a square with the dogs, you know, like...
2: And this place that had stood as a monument to Mariupol's recovery after the 2014 war, a symbol of the city's love of culture. And as Maria sees it, it's romantic heart where she had seen so many performances her favorite a dramatization of oscar and the lady in pink this place was now a refuge i
3: was like oh my god what the atmosphere what what amazing building what amazing people i was like oh i was so happy and we was very hungry and we came to the theater and they give us a tea and I was like, oh my God! This is uh, like the greatest tea in my life. Really, the greatest cookies in my life. Very amazing. And the greatest tea. And I was like, we're really like we're in heaven.
2: <laughs> Maria's family were by no means the only ones to have heard about the theatre. If anything, they were late arrivals.
3: So it was a lot of people. They was sitting or lying on a floor in a halls, so in a corridors, in a concert hall, in some office rooms, uh, in some theatre rooms, and I find place just on a third floor. And everyone said that is a very bad place because it's not so safe. But we was like we don't care. <laughs> We're in the theatre. Evacuation buses somewhere near us. We really in our um, crazy minds we think that we came to the theatre, drink tea and then evacuation buses came to Mariupol. We sit down and go to like to freedom. It was our plan and very foolish, very stupid plan.
2: We've spoken to others who were there at the theatre that day. One person who had been there for more than a week says that during her stay she never saw any evacuation buses. Maria and her family found some space on the third floor, had tea and biscuits, and Maria went to find her uncle, who lived nearby. She knew that she might not be able to persuade him to leave Mariupol with them, but she knew that she might not see him again for a really long time.
3: He is 71. He lives near the theatre. And I said to my mum, I go to uncle, and you be somewhere like this. And then I go to my uncle. On that day, he was fine, and I I started to return to the theatre, and I heard the noise of, of the plane.
2: It was after she left her uncle to return to the theatre that she heard a sound.
3: And then I heard like explosion, but s- somewhere in another place. And I go to the theatre, and first that I saw that it was dust in the in the sky, and I was like.
2: As she rounded the corner, she saw a big hole where the theatre roof was.
3: What the roof of the theatre doing on the road?
2: Walls were destroyed. Only one part of the theatre remained fully standing.
3: I, I go away like 15 minutes ago. Everything was fine. And I was like, what was what the theatre? And I saw like people lying on the square. I saw like parts of the wall on the square. And the trees was like and I heard people screaming the names, like, you know, like Masha, Sasha, Dasha, Mama. And uh, I ran into the building. I also called my mom and my sister. They have the same name, Galina. So my sister is Galina, my mom is Galina. So I called Galya, Galya. I saw that in the first hall, a lot of people, but I really, I don't care about anyone. I was have just a plan. Where is my mom? Where is my city? And I understand that they on the third floor and I should get there. Uh, so I ran through the building and in the open door, I saw that the concert hall was very destroyed. We have two stairs to get to the second and the third floor. And one of the stairs was destroyed and one of the stairs was okay. So I ran to the third floor and it was, it was
2: empty. Hundreds of people were crammed into the theatre's corridors, hundreds more in the basement and in the auditorium. And outside, at both the front and the back of the theatre, the word children Diety was written in huge letters in Russian on the ground, so big that the letters were visible in satellite images. But despite this, Russia bombed it anyway. Maria was left screaming in a dust cloud. Mariupol's biggest tormentor is arguably a man called Mikhail Mizintsev. He's a colonel general in the Russian army. He's got small, pale blue eyes, a sharp buzz cut, and hair that's almost white. Before the invasion, the 59-year-old wasn't a well-known figure outside Russia, but he's head of the Russian National Center for Defense Management, which directs Russia's military operations. And he reportedly helped to coordinate the destruction of Aleppo in Syria in 2015. But now he's better known to Ukrainians as the Butcher of Mariupol. According to the Ukrainian military, it was Mikhail Mizintsev who ordered the strikes on the maternity hospital and the theater. It's unconfirmed, but he was added to the British sanctions list for, I quote, planning and executing the siege and bombardment of Mariupol. Why is This is a clip allegedly intercepted by Ukrainian intelligence a few weeks ago. They claim it's Mikhail Mazintsev speaking. The person in the recording is calling for an officer to have his ears cut off for wearing the wrong uniform.
1: Why is his not cut off?
2: Look at that scum standing there, the voice says. Throughout the attack on Ukraine, Mzintsev has regularly parroted Putin's own misinformation about the conflict.
4: And now we're about bringing to responsibility, to accountability, those responsible for potential war crimes and crimes against humanity committed.
2: It's investigators like Nadia Volkova who are hoping to find the evidence to hold a man like Mikhail Mazintsev accountable. Nadia is the director of the Ukrainian Legal Advisory Group, a collection of lawyers and legal analysts in Ukraine.
4: I mean, we've been trying to compare it to the work of a doctor, you know, who operates. Especially maybe like, you know, in the field hospitals, for example. I mean, it doesn't matter that the bombs are flying over your head or the, you know, missiles, you still do your job, because you have to. And that's the approach that we've adopted.
2: Since the invasion, her organisation has been in a coalition of NGOs documenting Russian war crimes. It's called the 5am coalition. 5am, because that's when the war started. And they're not working alone. Beyond their group, there's a dizzying array of human rights organisations and journalists and online sleuths who are all working to gather evidence in the hope that the perpetrators can one day face trial. We talked to a man called Artem Staroshek, who retooled his risk assessment firm to help the Ukrainian cyber police. He told us his firm had identified hundreds of Russian soldiers who were reportedly in Bucha near Kiev.
4: There are a lot more actors Who are trying to document, even like the people who or the organizations that had never done this before, all of a sudden they were doing it as well. The problem
2: is that the Ukrainian legal system just isn't cut out for this. Very few national legal systems are.
4: With the way things are going now, not very optimistic, to tell you the truth. (laughs) It's a bit of an oxymoron, but you know, there's so much been said about the importance of justice and accountability and different stakeholders and actors have been, you know, swearing their lives and on uh, making sure that justice takes place and, you know, it's delivered. But what we see, I mean, this is something that politicians declare, or they are mostly political statements, because what we see on the ground and what's happening, actually, there's very little capacity on every level, to actually ensure that justice and accountability really happen. Because domestic system has been completely annihilated with this new phase of invasion. Everything that you touch within the legal system of Ukraine, you can say that it has no capacity. So the investigators and prosecutors don't have enough knowledge and expertise to investigate these crimes. And they haven't built it over the eight years of armed conflict, unfortunately. There is no legal framework or legislative framework to prosecute these types of crimes.
2: Nadia, though, is clear-eyed that we need to see convictions, if not in Ukraine, then internationally, through the International Criminal Court or a special
4: tribunal. It needs to be the real justice in order for the world to learn also the truth but primarily to to learn the lessons because i think we got to the point where too many get away with impunity and the more they you know the more we allow for this to happen the more dangerous the place the world is going to become
1: люди
2: It's the immediate aftermath of the theater bombing and this footage is taken from inside the building and it shows a doorway blocked by rubble and people with ash all over their faces streaming out. Alexey Budnikov filming was just inside the front door of the theater when the bomb hit. First, he ran up the stairs to get some air before realising that the whole roof had collapsed, bringing down the upper floors with it. Maria, at this point, who can't find her family, is getting desperate.
3: And I really, I was shocked because, you know, I really think that they're dead.
2: She's running around frantically calling for her mum, calling for her sister, but getting no response. She's fearing the worst.
3: That... Everything, what I'm doing, it's nothing. Like, I cannot help them. I'm just, I have hysteria and I'm screaming and running across. The-
2: she decides to try and reach the third floor where I she left them.
3: I really don't understand where they are, in what part of the building, really. And I am started to call my second name, not, not Galina, because, you know, the names, they could be the same. So... I started to call my second name like Kutnjakova, Kutnjakova. And someone started to uh, recall me like, like, Masha. And I was like, I expected that the noise should be somewhere up, you know, in the building. But the noise was like on the ground. And then I saw the door On the wall of the building is what opened. And uh, I came to this drawer and it was stairs down. And on these stairs was my sister.
2: Her sister is in a state of shock. Her mum seems dazed, almost calm, asking her simply, how are you, like they're just catching up. They all head outside the building.
3: When we get to the street, Russian artillery started bombed the square and the building of the Citra. So we understand that in the streets it's not safe. But we not we cannot go to the shelter because the building on fire. People started to run in the different ways, like, and we also started running. We really don't understand where we're running. we just running, you know, from the theatre, we understand that. But then someone said, we should go to the philharmonie, and philharmonie, it's like ten minutes near the theatre.
2: Of the three people we spoke to who had been at the theatre attack, only Maria mentioned artillery fire. The other two confirmed that people sprinted off in all directions. Maria and her family headed to the concert hall, which is nearby, and that night, they endured another night of bombing. The next day, they decided to do what Generations of their family had not done. They left Mariupol.
3: Yes, and we were like, we should go away, because uh, in the Mariupol we died. And we go by walk to the little village near the Mariupol. This village occupied by Russians, but they not bombed it. And we, it's called milekino
2: They heard rumours of mines being planted on the main roads outside of the city.
3: When we uh, get away from Mariupol, uh, we think like, oh, we could get to Ukrainian territory, but then we've been four days in Milekina,
2: Two days here, two days there. They kept moving.
3: So I was uh, on the way almost two weeks. Before war, we have a train, the longest train in Ukraine, Mariupol-Lviv. It was 28 hours, and I hate it. I was like, I hate this train, I could die in the street. But now, when I was two weeks on the road from Marubel to Biff, I was like, what an amazing train.
2: Finally, Maria made it to the western city of Lviv near the Polish border and to safety with her mum and her sister and her cat, Muishka. Which means mouse. But hundreds of others in the theater that day didn't escape, and it's thought that up to 300 people died.
3: I'm really like, Ukraine, not do anything for starting this war. We just exist. I, I really didn't believe that in the 21st century, someone could do something like Hitler. But then I understand that they are really crazy nerds and everything that they hope that we can stop it because it's not only Ukrainian problem. It's it's a Georgian problem. It's like a pre-Baltica problem. It's like a Moldova problem. I understand that um, Putin want to rebuild USSR. This is what was very horrible. And I hope that he cannot do it. I believe in my country. I believe in my president. Just go away from my country.
2: Maria's uncle, the one that she went to visit on the day of the theatre bomb, he's missing. She has no idea if he made it out. Around 100,000 civilians are still thought to remain inside the city. Until the Russians are defeated, or they retreat, the true scale of the horror unleashed on Mariupol will remain unknown. But of course, Maria's heard the news from Butcher, near Kiev, where civilians were tied up and executed, and where girls as young as 15 were reportedly raped by Russian soldiers. She fears the worst. Most weeks in this podcast, we build towards a conclusion, to say something about our reporting and what we've learned. And this week, where we end up is, I think, really simple. The assault on Mariupol will come to define the Russian invasion. The question isn't how we define these horrors. It's who stands to be tried for them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. It was written and reported by Xavier Greenwood and Matt Russell. It was produced by Matt Russell. The editor was Jasper Corbett. And sound design is by Carla Patella. And if you'd like to read and listen to more of our reporting on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you can join us at Tortoise. You can be my guest, no less. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. So I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that we're launching at Tortoise with the inimitable Andrew Neal. Listen to Andrew's new podcast, The Backstory. This week, he's in conversation with the former CIA director, David Petraeus. And if you're a member, you'll get a bonus episode on Friday on the Tortoise app.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.